everyone hurts and it's just a time that we are using to just come together and do something good and make something good out of, you know, the devastation. Alaskans help out in the wake of the devastating wildfires on Maui. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Monday, August 14th. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also tonight, one woman's tragic battle with opioid addiction becomes a warning for students. Kelsey could have died of an overdose at a friend's house or on the street or whatever. Nothing would have changed. Because of the way she died, I had to give her a voice. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. You know that eating fruits and vegetables supports good health. But did you also know that frozen and canned produce offers the same health benefits as fresh? It's true. Whether fresh, frozen, canned, or from the land, eating fruits and veggies can lead to a long and healthy life. So when it comes to getting the fruits and veggies you need to stay healthy, remember, every bite counts. This message sponsored by SNAP. First responders are still sorting through the devastation on Maui. So far, wildfires have scorched more than 2,000 acres and killed nearly 100 people on the island. Alaska is home to a large Hawaiian community, many of whom have links to Maui. Alaska Public Media's Kavitha George spoke to one community member who jumped into action last week to help organize relief efforts. On Friday afternoon, Tasha Kahele's phone was blowing up. Yeah, call me. We'll help in whatever way we can, even if we got to ship it by air cargo. Kahele is a multitasker with two jobs and multiple businesses. That afternoon, she was on her way to Costco to pick up pizzas for volunteers, and at the same time, fielding a stream of phone calls and texts from organizations offering donations for Maui locals left stranded by the fires. Take care. Bye-bye. So I have been overwhelmed with calls and everything. Kahele's family runs Lay's Poke Stop at Takatnu Commons. In the parking lot outside, her family and friends loaded into a Matson trailer cases of water bottles, diapers, and non-perishable food, donated by individuals and local businesses. Kahele and her family moved to Alaska from Oahu 15 years ago. She moved not expecting to know anyone until she realized how vibrant Alaska's Hawaiian community is. Some families have been here for generations, and many still have deep roots back home, she says. Even though we're a thou- you know, thousands of miles away, we're still affected by it. And when they hurt, we hurt. Everyone hurts, and it's just a time that, that uh, we are using to just come together and do something good and make something good out of you know, the devastation. After fires spread rapidly through the island early last week, Kahele says she felt a sense of hopelessness watching the tragedy unfold on social media. But as she explained at the Costco pizza counter, she's not one to sit on the sidelines. I literally woke up yesterday morning and said, okay, enough crying, we're praying, it was just so much stuff going on. We have to do something. She messaged her family group text, called local Hawaiian churches and Pacific Islander organizations, and within a few hours, secured donated shipping container space to send relief items home. Within less than 24 hours, we had U.S. foods donate pallets of water, pallets of non-perishable food that's in the container already. We had single households, people that we don't even know, that bought truckloads of stuff. Back at the Takatnu parking lot, donations are still rolling in. I've got empty boxes and I got some clothes. Hi. Yes. 
Nearby, Anchorage resident Olani Sonoa is helping sort clothes into boxes. She directs purchasing for U.S. Foods, a wholesale food company. Her family in Maui is safe, but she called on the company for donations to help out their neighbors. And by 12.30, we had literally half a truckload of water down here to fill up the truck and a couple other items. With children running underfoot and music blasting, spirits this afternoon are high. <laughs> right? Even even in a devastating moment and, uh, you know, a, t- a time of emergency, that really is just the Polynesian aloha spirit, right? Kahele and her team gathered about 60,000 pounds of donations over the weekend. She's hoping to organize more. The most important items, like generators, will arrive in Maui by air cargo later this week, and the rest will go on a barge to arrive early next month. Kahele plans to fly to Maui in the next few days to be there when they unload. In Anchorage, I'm Kavitha George. Kahele says anyone looking to donate can reach out to King's Alaska Churches in Eagle River and Wasilla, She says the most needed items right now are menstrual products, lanterns and headlights, and plastic tote containers. Middle and high schools in Anchorage have access to a new opioid curriculum this year. Last spring, the district responded to 10 non-fatal drug overdoses at five different schools. The new curriculum is dedicated to the memory of a young local woman who died from complications of opioid addiction seven years ago. Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra has more. John Green knew his daughter was in trouble. Kelsey Green had survived two sexual assaults as an adolescent, and he says she started self-medicating with OxyContin pills in 2011. That ultimately turned into a heroin addiction. There's no parent that plans for when their child becomes an addict. We didn't understand about detox, didn't know the questions to ask. So we sent her to a rehab outside, and within a couple of days, you know, once she started getting dope sick, she, she walked out. Kelsey continued to struggle with her addiction, but she dreamed of a life beyond it. She told Green she wanted to write a book and visit schools to tell her story after her recovery. She wanted to explain what addiction and withdrawal really feel like. She hoped she could stop even one person from going down a path of addiction. But a couple months after that conversation, Kelsey was arrested. She died in jail of complications from withdrawal. She was in a cell by herself. And when they came and checked on her in the morning, she was naked underneath the call button, stuck in a position with her hand up where she couldn't reach the call button. Kelsey died from dehydration in 2016 as a complication from withdrawing from opioids. Green says she lost 20 pounds of fluids in the few days she was in jail. Green sued and won a wrongful death settlement against the state. Kelsey isn't around to convince kids to stay away from opioids. But in 2018, Green met someone who wanted to help him tell Kelsey's story. Michael Carson is a former teacher and chair of the Matsu Borough Opioid Task Force. I have been blessed and I was fortunate that my children and grandchildren have escaped any kind of issues around addiction. But I felt so moved by his story that I wanted to do something. Carson and Green saw big holes in opioid education in Alaska. They wanted young people to have a clear understanding of the risks of drugs, beyond being told to just say no. And because the opioid epidemic is changing so quickly, they wanted lessons that could be updated multiple times a year. 
So with Kelsey as inspiration, Carson developed a curriculum. He's already taught it in four schools in the Matsu borough. It could be taught in as many as 20 more Anchorage schools this year. Eventually, they'd like to teach the lesson statewide. The curriculum teaches kids how addiction works and what it feels like to withdraw from opioids. It's called Kelsey's Lesson. Carson says the lesson educates about the science of addiction in a straightforward way using Alaska imagery. And it tells people about what withdrawal feels like. I've heard stories from people that have gone through detox where they said that, you know, they felt like they were possessed by aliens. They felt like they were going to die. Carson collaborated with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to follow national guidelines. And last spring, the Anchorage School Board unanimously passed a policy to include the lesson in health education for grades 8 through 12. Kathy Bell is Director of Healthcare Services for the school district. She's very scared about opioids in the schools. And she says drug education like this is a crucial part of preventing student deaths. Our students are using it for experimenting. And they think they're taking maybe a pain medication like Percocet, but the Percocet now is laced with fentanyl, and they're not aware of that at all. And it's a very tiny amount of fentanyl that can cause death because it causes a respiratory depression. Kelsey's lesson is one piece in a larger puzzle of how the school district is responding to the epidemic. They're also distributing overdose kits and training educators on how to use them. And Bell says, the more drug education, the better. Even if you say it in September, saying it again in January is not going to hurt again because they forget or they don't think about it and may make a bad choice. And we don't want anybody making that bad choice. We want everybody to be here with us on this earth. Green struggled for years to make sense of his daughter Kelsey's death. He kept asking why this had to happen to Kelsey just as she had a chance to detox. Because Kelsey died in state custody and was denied life-saving care, Green says he has an obligation to share her story. Kelsey could have died of an overdose at a friend's house or on the street or whatever. Nothing would have come of it. Nothing would have changed. I could have maybe had to identify her body in a dumpster. Because of the way she died, I had to give her a voice. Carson and Green are also organizing around State House Bill 6, which requires the Department of Education to create an opioid curriculum. They're hoping to add an amendment to make that drug education mandatory. That would mean opioid education would be required in every school in Alaska. In Anchorage, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, Juno schools and the state education department debate a federal law that determines local school funding. We might have to let districts keep their impact aid money and not have a state say, oh, somebody in the higher level of government is giving you that, so we won't. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Quality child care creates futures for families, children, and the state's economy. When children are safe, engaged, and learning, parents can work and everyone has a better outcome. Thread has resources to support your family in their child care search. Knowing what to look for in a licensed facility is important for the safety of your children. Thread also offers parenting resources and support. To learn more about quality child care in Alaska, visit threadalaska.org. This message sponsored by Thread. Anchorage police are investigating two shootings in East Anchorage Sunday night and another not far away this afternoon. At last report, there were no arrests yet in any of the three cases. 
The most recent shooting happened today in the Mountain View neighborhood. As of 4 p.m., police had deployed a SWAT team as they continued to search for a suspect in the area. Police say the male suspect shot another man outside before entering a nearby apartment building. According to police, he then fired a single shot at the apartment building from the outside, striking a small child. Both victims were brought to a hospital. Police say the extent of their injuries is currently unknown. The other two shootings happened within hours of each other Sunday night. Police say the first occurred around 9 p.m. when a woman was shot in the upper body at Creekside Park. She was taken to a hospital to treat a non-life-threatening injury. Roughly two and a half hours later, police responded to another shooting about two miles away near Russian Jack Springs Park. Police say a man was shot once in the lower body while walking down Pine Street. He was also brought to a hospital with a non-life-threatening injury. Police say a search for the suspect in the first shooting was underway when the second shooting happened. In both Sunday shootings, police say the victims said they did not see the shooter. Police say the victims also did not know one another. Police are investigating whether any of the three recent shootings are related. They're asking anyone with information to call dispatch at 311. And to remain anonymous, you can leave a tip at AnchorageCrimeStoppers.com. Authorities have released the names of the two victims who are presumed to have died after their airplane they were in crashed Wednesday in a steep ravine in the southwest corner of Denali National Park and Preserve. And as KUAC's Tim Ellis reports, park rangers and investigators are trying to figure out how to get to the crash site and recover the victims' bodies. Denali National Park and Preserve officials say 45-year-old Jason Tucker of Wasilla was the pilot of the Piper PA-18 Super Cub that went down Wednesday in a remote and mountainous area in the park's southwest preserve. They also identified the passenger of the plane as 44-year-old Nicholas Blaise of Chugiak. The crash site is in a very steep and narrow ravine. Park spokesperson Sharon Steitler says both victims are presumed dead, but investigators won't be able to confirm that nor recover the bodies until they can get to the site. Our mountaineering rangers are still assessing the site and safety. Steitler says rescue personnel have concluded after three flights into the area that it would be unsafe to try and recover the bodies with a high-risk operation involving the use of a 460-foot rescue tether line suspended from a helicopter. She said in an interview Sunday that they're also considering hiking up to the site, but they're concerned about the area's unstable footing. The narrow ravine has a lot of loose rock. And there's not really any kind of shoreline on a very rapidly moving creek at the crash site. The difficulty of accessing the site also is complicating the National Transportation Safety Board's investigation into the crash. We're still kind of in a standby mode as far as uh, rescue and recovery operations. Aaron Sauer is the NTSB's lead investigator. We're gathering as much information as possible through the channels we have. Sauer says that includes collecting information about weather conditions Wednesday evening when the Super Cub went down. And they're also talking with people involved in the flight, like a second hunter who Steitler says was waiting for Tucker to return to pick him up after dropping off Blaze at a different airstrip near the western boundary of the preserve. He was the one that had the information that the pilot had taken his hunting partner uh, out to the other airstrip. Steitler says after being stranded for several hours, the hunter contacted Alaska State Troopers who rescued him. The hunter provided information that answers many questions, but Sauer says there are still a lot of unknowns, including the cause of the crash, that investigators won't be able to determine until they can get on site and examine the wreckage. 
you know, we all hope that uh, recovery efforts can be made in this situation. Uh, but again, that's National Park Service who's coordinating all that. Sauer said in an interview Sunday that investigators would like to include the cause of the crash in their preliminary report findings. He says that may determine when the NTSB issues that report. I would like to say that we'd get the preliminary report out with this coming week. But in this situation, with the recovery operations still being considered, um, we may hold up on that in case we uh, have some additional information that could be part of that report. The agency probably won't issue a final report on the crash for several more months. In Delta Junction, I'm Tim Ellis. The state education department recently told the Juneau School District that it could no longer accept city funding outside the cap. That's a limit on city funding set by the state. At the root of the dispute is a federal law that saves the state millions of dollars in education spending. KTOO's Katie Anastas has more. Earlier this year, the Juneau Assembly gave the school district more than $2 million to resolve deficits from non-instructional costs, things like transportation and the district's child care program. In June, the Alaska Department of Education and Early Development sent a letter to the district saying that extra funding wasn't allowed. School Board President Dee Dee Sorensen says this has never been an issue before. It's like implying that there's something afoot, and there's not. The school board sent a letter back, saying that money isn't subject to the local funding cap because it pays for community services, not day-to-day district operations. They're still waiting on a response from the state. But whether or not that funding applies to Juno's local contribution cap, the state has two reasons to limit local funding. On one hand, it ensures that school districts are funded as fairly as possible across Alaska. On the other, it allows the state to avoid paying millions of dollars to schools, through a practice used by no other state in the country. The law at the heart of the dispute involves two things, federal impact aid and the disparity test. Federal impact aid goes to school districts where students live on federal property or Indian lands. That money is meant to help those districts make up for lost tax revenue, since federal land is exempt from property taxes. In Alaska, that includes military bases and Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act land. The disparity test measures whether a state's school funding is shared fairly among all districts. Alaska passes that test if there's a less than 25 percent funding difference between the highest and lowest funded districts. But passing the test doesn't just indicate fairness. It helps reduce state spending on schools. The state has to give school districts a certain amount of money each year. But if the state passes the disparity test, the federal government lets the state put most of the impact aid toward that amount. Juneau Democratic Senator Jesse Keel is on the Senate Education Committee. The formula says that we have now says the state deducts 90 percent of the impact aid money from what it gives districts toward their basic needs. So from the state's check. He says deducting the impact aid from the state's check keeps that money within Alaska's school funding formula. The formula gives more money for certain reasons, like having students with intensive special needs or offering vocational training. Outside the formula, impact aid would only go to districts with federal or ANCSA land. Not based on what it costs to educate kids there. Not based on how how tough it is to build a kid's future there. Keeping money within the formula helps ensure that it's distributed fairly. 
but passing the disparity test still means the state writes a smaller check. That's what's at risk if the state fails. That's the potential, right, is we might have to let districts keep their impact aid money and not have the state say, oh, somebody in government, in a higher level of government, is giving you that, so we won't. In fiscal year 2022, the state deducted $73 million in federal impact aid from its cost to schools. The loss to affected districts varies. The state deducts $5 million in federal impact aid from its contribution to the Anchorage School District. In Fairbanks, it's $7 million. In the Lower Kuskokwim School District, it's more than $15 million. In districts that don't have a lot of federal land, like the Matanuska, Susitna Borough, and Juneau, the state doesn't deduct any impact aid. I have not seen uh, a, a session go by in 25 years where there isn't uh, a training session on the education funding formula. And the education funding formula walkthrough always includes this step about deducting 90% of impact aid. Uh, and legislators with significant federal presence in their district say, wait, you do what? And legislators uh, without major federal infrastructure or, or impacts in their district go, mm-hmm, what's the next step? According to the U.S. Department of Education, Alaska is the only state that counts federal impact aid as state funding. New Mexico stopped doing it two years ago, letting eligible districts keep $60 million in federal money without reducing their state funds. Alaska's legislature approved a one-time school funding boost of $175 million this year, but Governor Mike Dunleavy vetoed half of it. Keel says sufficient statewide funding would reduce the risk of failing the disparity test. The old saying is a rising tide floats all boats. But that veto leaves the kids who are in a dinghy to start with bailing as fast as they can, and they might get swamped by this thing. The Juneau School District is still waiting on a response from the State Department of Education. The department's school finance manager, Lori Weed, didn't respond to an interview request or a list of questions. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. BIBEW is the union of skilled hands and generous hearts, hardworking people on the job and off. It's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. This message sponsored by the IBEW Local 1547. Invasive plants and animals threaten Alaska's environment and economy and can spread to new locations by hitching a ride. Anyone can help prevent the spread of invasive species by remembering to play clean go, removing all plants, animals, and mud from boots, gear, and vehicles before entering and leaving recreational areas will help stop invasive species in their tracks. Learn more at playcleango.org. This message sponsored by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. As Anchorage students prepare to go back to school this week, several schools have new safety upgrades. Over the summer, six ASD elementary schools had security vestibules installed, adding an extra set of doors at the main entrance. Anchorage School District Security Director Ashley Lally says the vestibules can slow down a potential attack to allow law enforcement time to arrive. The schools that have these now have two opportunities to deny entrance to people. Um, and we know it's not a perfect solution. There's never going to be a perfect solution. You definitely cannot 
uh, build or tech your way out of this problem. Um, and that's why I always kind of revert back to what we can do to prevent and mitigate, uh, which is really more on the mental health side. Along with the vestibules, ASD introduced the Be Smart program to promote the safe storage of firearms in the home. Lally says free gun locks were distributed at a recent event at Clark Middle School. It's not that every time a gun is found on school grounds, it's intentional. It really is accidental sometimes. And part of that um, must be because weapons are not being stored properly at home. Lally also encourages parents to make sure their contact information is updated with the district in case of an emergency. The first day of school in Anchorage is Thursday. Hibernation scientists at the University of Alaska Fairbanks have invited colleagues and students from around the world to a workshop in Fairbanks. They reviewed each other's findings indoors last week and will head up to the Tulik Lake Research Station in the Brooks Range tomorrow for outdoor lab work. KUAC's Robin reports. Already they've been to a supercooling lab and done several hands-on experiments. It's been pretty intense. That's Dr. Kelly Drew. She's known for her groundbreaking work in drugs and cryogenics. She's one of the coordinators of the two-week summer school, along with Brian Barnes and Oyvind Toyin, who's giving a lecture here about bears. About three dozen scientists and students have come to share and hear the latest discoveries. They're from everywhere. We were so excited to see the international interest. They've attracted quite a lot of people throughout the world right now, and it's making quite a buzz. Nirhal Lal came from Scripps Research in San Diego, where he works on understanding brain circuits in mice. Applications are immense. What understanding hibernation can bring to medical science most of the diseases what we are struggling with right now, heart diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, I think answers to those will lie in these kind of research. Hibernation occurs across the world. So how has Fairbanks, Alaska, and UAF specifically, become an international center for hibernation research? Credit the Arctic ground squirrel, which was discovered in 1989 to lower its body temperature to below freezing and survive. That discovery by Dr. Brian Barnes rocked science. It also seeded subsequent research in cryogenics that could benefit emergency medicine and space travel. Domenico Tuponi is here from the University of Bologna. He's studying thermal regulation with Dr. Kelly Drew. We work on hibernation, and uh, I'm interested in uh, what the animal and the species that are present here in Alaska and I'm studying thermoregulation, and the interest in hibernation is directly correlated to the study I'm doing. Matt Andrews teaches at University of Nebraska, which is using molecular biology of hibernation to develop therapies and medicines for humans. We've had success at developing a therapy for hemorrhagic shock. So when a person has profound bleeding, like in vehicular accident or a wartime injury, and they lose a lot of blood, this is a way that you can put the cells of their body into like a hibernation-like state so that you buy time to get them to the hospital. Horan Tao is a graduate student from Yale University. This hibernation workshop really like um, brings together the hibernation community. So for me, as one of the newest people in the field, it's nice to actually hear from like Brian, hear from Ovian about all their research. It's really nice to see like the whole community and how we were doing hibernation field. This week, the workshop heads up to UAF's Tulik Lake Research Station for lab work on Arctic animals. For KUAC, I'm Robin.
That's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. We had reports tonight from Kavitha George, Rachel Cassandra, and Wesley Early in Anchorage, Tim Ellis in Delta Junction, Katie Anastas in Juneau, and Robin in Fairbanks. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us at news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Chris Hyde, Tim Rocky is our producer, and I'm Casey Grove. Good night. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by Princess Lodges, offering glass-domed railcar tours to Talkeetna and Denali National Park for Alaska summer adventures. Your journey begins at princesslodges.com. And by Alaska Air Cargo, providing Gold Streak Express shipping for urgent deliveries throughout Alaska, with connections to more than 100 destinations in the lower 48 and Hawaii. More at alaskacargo.com. This is statewide news on Alaska Public Media.